Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Habakkuk. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Kids, we wanted you to stay in for our movie scene. You are dismissed to Children's Church. If you're heading that way, you can head out now. And everybody else, turn to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1. You guys just chew on that movie scene for a little bit. You can ask Mr. Brent what's going on there. He'll, uh, he'll answer all theological questions for you. Really interesting, um, Louis Armstrong, from my research, when he wrote that song, it was an optimistic appeal to end all the racial tension in our culture in 1967. Uh, what's, what's really interesting about the movie clip is what the producers did there is they juxtaposed this, this song that's peaceful, calm, and just quiet with a, with a scene that is chaos, catastrophe, and just pain everywhere. And you kind of get this, uh, this experience. Remember when I first watched that scene, I was just thinking like, that is so much of the fallen world in which we live. You know, on the outside, things can look really, really good and peaceful, but in reality, when you look a little deeper, when you experience pain yourself, you realize that it's a jungle out there. It is eat or be eaten, it is only the strong survive. And this is the fallen world in which we live, and this is a fallen world that Habakkuk talks about in the context of this, this minor prophet. In his book, God at War, Greg Boyd says this, I think it's good. He says, something has gone bad on a cosmic scale. The earth has turned into a veritable war zone. It was Betsy who said of her sister, Corey, in a Nazi death camp, Corey, we are in hell. Uh, Cornelius Pantinga reminds us that evil contaminates every scalpel designed to remove it. We live in a fallen world where far too often it is a jungle with pain and suffering. And one of the things we struggle with in a fallen world is, is the dynamics of, of good and happy and joyful times versus times of pain and suffering. Because when times are good, we don't experience the fallen world, the pain and the suffering that goes along with it. We actually experience a lot of, a lot of joy and comfort. But when things are bad, God can seem silent in a painful fallen world. I want you to listen to this from C.S. Lewis. He says, where is God when you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him? If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Lewis asks this question. He says, why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent in help in a time of trouble? You guys find Habakkuk chapter 1? This is the question that we're going to answer 
uh, this first week as we, as we start this book. Before we jump into Habakkuk, I want to kind of give just a little bit of a, of a background, a historical background. It's what's going on in the history of Israel and what's going on in the world at this time. Uh, some of you guys are in the Lighthouse class this morning. You've probably heard Scott Susong talk a little bit about this. 722 is the date that we traditionally give to the Assyrian invasion, the takeover of northern Israel. What you have to remember is that when David and Solomon were king over Israel, Israel was what we would call a united monarchy. There were 12 tribes that were dis- dispersed throughout the land of Israel, in and around the area of Israel that we know of today, just a bigger expansion. And it was to Solomon that God said, because of your unfaithfulness, because of all the wives and concubines that you have taken on, and because of your idols that you have served, the kingdom is going to be split. But he said, I'm not going to do it under your time. It's actually going to happen to your son. And so under King Rehoboam, the kingdom of Israel was split. It was no longer a united kingdom with 12 tribes. It was now a divided kingdom with two major sections. Israel, kingdom in the north, and Judah was the kingdom in the south. In the north, in 722 B.C., under Sennacherib and Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrians took over the territory, and they took northern Israel captive. They all became slaves to the Assyrians. It was in 630 B.C. that the Neo-Babylonian threat began to rear its ugly head off to the east, and it was such a threat, Nebuchadnezzar and his horde, that all the other world powers in and around the Middle Eastern area of the world knew about it and had to do something about it. And so what you saw was the great power to the south, Egypt, made an alliance with the Assyrians in the north in order to fight off this new Babylonian threat that was on the horizon. It just came about in, in 616 BC, Egypt allies with Assyria. They come up, they send a group of an army up through the land of Israel. They go from Egypt in the south, they travel along the Mediterranean Sea there in the, in the King's Highway, and they go east in order to help out the Assyrians. And as they pass through the kingdom of Judah, young Josiah was sitting on the throne of Judah. Josiah was an incredible king, one of the best kings Israel's ever had, eight years old when he became king. He reinstituted Passover, he brought the law back, he reinstituted all the sacrifices in Israel. For his age, Josiah is a great, great king for what he did for the history of the people. But it's really a mystery in their history here. As Egypt was going through the land of Judah in order to help out the Assyrians, Josiah decided to stand in his way. He cut off the Egyptians. The Egyptian commander said to him, we're not here to fight you. Our battle is not with you. We're going to the Assyrians. We're going to help out so we can fight off this Babylonian threat. And Josiah said, no, too bad. I'm going to fight you. And he was defeated. And he was killed in 609 B.C. 605, the Babylonians defeated Egypt. Their threat, their power became greater and greater. Finally, in 603, Jehoiakim ends up paying tribute to the Babylonian king. First, Jehoiakim was on the side of the Egyptians. The Egyptians beat Josiah. They killed him, the kingdom of Judah at that time. So he says, you know what? I'm going to be friends with the Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians get defeated by the Babylonians. Guess what Jehoiakim says now? I'm going to be friends with the Babylonians. So he tries to be an ally with them in order to save his own skin and save his country. 
It was probably right at this period in 603 BC, between 603 and 601, most people believe that Habakkuk was written. And you gotta understand a little bit about history and context here. Uh, 597 will be the first invasion of Jerusalem by the uh, Babylonians, by Nebuchadnezzar. They take off Daniel and his friends, all the nobles, they take them off into their kingdom and, and for slaves. Um, Habakkuk was written at a time when Israel was just steamrolled by two other nations, Egypt and then the Babylonians after that. I want you to look down because this helps make sense of verse 2 in your text. Have you found this? Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. He cries out to the Lord, O Lord, how long shall I cry out for help and you not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? It makes a whole lot more sense when you know what was happening militarily and politically for the nation. So Habakkuk, the prophet, is crying out to God because Judah had been slowly crumbling and annihilating right before his eyes. Even though you find Habakkuk lumped together with 11 other minor prophets, it is very unique, it's very distinct. Habakkuk stands out amongst the 12. Most Old Testament prophets, when you read them, you'll probably hear statements like, um, you have sinned, you are guilty, you should be ashamed of yourselves. If you will repent and turn back to the Lord, he will show you hope and comfort, he will rescue you, and he will deliver you. Habakkuk, you don't see a, a whole lot of that at all. Instead, what you see from Habakkuk is one guy's prayer journal with God. This is very personal prayer from a prophet to God that's recorded for us in his word. As the book unfolds, Habakkuk is questioning and he's crying out to the Lord for justice, for intervention. Do something about this. Oh, Lord, save us. We get to peer into the private life of Habakkuk and what he's asking for. As the book unfolds, there's uh, some nuances. We won't go into all the details of the structure, but I just want to show you where we're headed. Habakkuk is uh, it's, it's written much like a lament. When you hear these psalms, oh, Lord, how long, is exactly what you hear from the lament psalms in the, in the book of Psalms. You have a, a first lament where Habakkuk questions God. He says, where is your justice? All this violence is being done to us. God is gonna answer that question at the end of the passage that we'll look at this morning. Then Habakkuk raises his lament yet again, and he asks God even more questions because he didn't like the answer that the Lord gave him the first time. He tries to convince him to do something different. After these two great laments, again, we'll talk about this as we go, there's these five woes, mostly in chapter two of Habakkuk. And the woes are pronounced against Babylon, this kingdom that God has raised up to, to show justice, discipline, perhaps, to his own people. There's five woes to Babylon and therefore nations like them. God pronounces woes on nations who would use violence and oppression to overcome the weak. Woes to those who would use slave labor for their own gain. Woes to those who drink alcohol and use sex and, and pleasure and hedonism to their own ends, their own joy and satisfaction. And woe to those who are idolaters, worshiping money and power. Finally, you get to the end of chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20 is a turning point. 
We're going to spend a lot of time there when we get to that verse. And then in chapter 3, just three short chapters in this book, Habakkuk prays and he pleads with God. And God is going to give him an answer. Habakkuk is going to come to a different conclusion than he had at the beginning of the book. Uh, Really powerful, poetic statements at the end in Habakkuk chapter 3. Those last few verses are, are very memorable, ones you'll want to memorize. Let's look at the text this morning, our first point, as we look at Habakkuk 1, verses 1 through 4. When dealing with God in a painful, fallen world, questions are good, assumptions are bad. Questions to God are okay. Assumptions of God are not okay. And here's how it goes. Look down at verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And so, the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. And so justice goes forth perverted. It's interesting that this little prophet is named Habakkuk. Habakkuk in Hebrew, uh, it means to embrace. Habakkuk would be the the one who embraces. And Luther, actually in the history of commentaries, Luther says that Habakkuk is understood as the one who embraced his people. Jerome, the great Latin translator, said Habakkuk is the embracing the problem of justice as he sees it in his nation and even in the world. Others say that Habakkuk embraced God's sovereignty and providence and learned to trust him, even in the midst when it seems like God is not in control. That's exactly what he is. He's in control. He's sovereign over those things. Remember, Habakkuk gives us two laments in chapter 1. This is the first one, verses 1 through 4. And if you look at laments, especially in the Psalter, they will all follow a pretty typical pattern. When you, when you study them and when you put the structures alongside of one another, there's really five things that you would expect in a lament psalm. An address to God, you have that here, back in chapter 1, a complaint from the psalmist, a description of the situation that he is in, and then a request for help. The psalmist will cry out to God for help. At the end of the lament psalms, there's a statement of confidence in God. I know you're going to work through this situation. I know your character. The psalmist always comes back to God's character, and then he ends with a vow of praise, uh, or a statement at least, of trust in the Lord. The beginning of lament psalms are always different than the end of lament psalms, and that's certainly what you're going to see as you look at the book of Habakkuk, but there's a little bit more to it than that, because in this first lament that we see in chapter 1, you've got the first two elements of a lament psalm. You don't have any of the last three. This is a lament on steroids by Habakkuk. He doesn't even get to those, to those lower elements of what we would expect if we were reading a psalm by David. He can't figure it out. This is a guy who is deeply disturbed because he knows the character of God. He knows that he is forgiving. He knows that he's the restorer God. He knows that there's hope in him. I didn't see any of that in the landscape of Judah. No sign of it, even, on the horizon. One reason is, is because there's so much violence that he has seen. Did you see the repetition of violence in these verses? Verse 2, 
I cry out to you violence and you do not, do not save. Verse three, destruction and violence are before me. You're gonna see that word repeated again in chapter one, verse nine, chapter two, verse eight, and chapter two, verse 17. You got at least five references to violence in three chapters. This is a major theme through Habakkuk. One commentator says it is the key word punctuating the message of this book. And its fundamental meaning is a flagrant violation of the moral law. It has to do with ethical wrong. When you go to the step of violence, there is something different, and we need to end this now, right? The prophet looks out, he looks around, he sees that violence is everywhere all the time, and there is seemingly no end to this violence. Notice verse 2. Habakkuk is speaking with his mouth. Verse 3, Habakkuk is looking with his eyes. Verse 2, Habakkuk is not listening with his ears. Verse 3, God is not caring or he is idly looking alongside. The prophet is incredulous. He can't imagine why the God of Israel will not do something about what's going on to his people and in his land. He's waiting, eagerly waiting. His conclusion is, is verse 4. And the law is paralyzed. It's there. It's not working how it's designed to work. Habakkuk pictures a, a courtroom scene here. He brings eyewitness conclusions and testimony. If you are the judge, if you are the sovereign Lord over all this, all the things that are happening in our nation, then stand up, drop the gavel, and let's go. Show me some justice. God's not doing it. And so he asks, how long? How long is this gonna go on for? And listen, questioning God as an individual, as a church, as a group of people, that's not a bad thing. You've got a lot of, we were just talking about this in our men's study on Thursday this week. You a lot of scriptural examples of guys who question God, godly, wise men who question God. Look at Isaiah chapter 64, verse 12. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silence and afflict us beyond measure? The greatest and strongest questions. See, God the Father comes from, from Psalm 22, in the mouth of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? If, there's, if it's okay for Jesus to question God, then certainly it's okay for us when we experience pain and suffering and trials in this world. It's not the questions that are bad here. It's the, it's the assumptions. It's the conclusions about God's character that are bad. Look at back at verse four, ESV. It says, the wicked surround the righteous. That's the verb for being hemmed in like a garment. They're in, entrapped and enclosed by a wicked, godless nation called the Babylonians. In verse 4, it says that justice is perverted. Literally, that means crooked or bent. There's a path of justice, and we're not experiencing it. You know what they say about assumptions of God, right? You know what they say about assumptions, period? Assumptions are like armpits. Everybody's got them, and they all stink, right? Habakkuk assumes some things here. What does he assume? He assumes, number one, that God is not listening. Verse two. 
He assumes that God is looking, but he's looking idly, not wanting to do anything about it, or not even doing anything about it currently. He assumes that justice is perverted, present tense, because of the situation that they're in. Is God's justice perverted? All of us enjoy life. We experience satisfaction when times are good. All of us know that something is wrong when we experience pain and hurt. In your marriages, in your relationships, anything else in life. Whenever you experience suffering and pain, it's a stop sign. Something is not right. It's not right in my life. It's not right in the way that God has created this world. Until we understand that evil is unmistakably present, we are all enclosed in illusion. Say that again. Until we understand that evil is unmistakably present in our lives and in our world, we are all enclosed in illusion. C.S. Lewis has this great phrase. He says, pain and suffering will shatter the illusion that all is well. One man has said, it's a poor thing to strike our colors to God when the ship is going down beneath us. And Judah, the ship was at the bottom. There's going to be no room for anybody to stand up to God, to strike our colors and proudly ask and assume bad things. There's going to come a time in your life, in my life, if you have any age on you, you've already experienced it many times over, where you're going to suffer and experience great pain, and there is absolutely nothing that you can do about it. The only thing that you're going to have to hold on to is God's word, God's character, and who he is. Instead of questioning God, Habakkuk should have been questioning his assumptions. He should have been doubting his doubts. Deep emotional questions are absolutely okay. Quick, unbiblical assumptions are absolutely not okay when it comes to what God has revealed himself about himself in his word. Questions are good from Habakkuk. Assumptions are bad. Number two, answers are easy, believing is hard. Answers are easy, believing is hard. In one fail swoop here, God is not only going to answer Habakkuk's questions, he's going to shatter his assumptions. He's going to kill two birds with one stone, all right? And we're going to read about it. Look down at verse, verse five. He says, look among the nations and see. This is God now replying to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. And this is a familiar verse to you guys from the New Testament. Talk about this at the end. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I have told you. Have you guys uh, noticed some summer construction going on in Tulsa right now? Any of you guys travel to Yale at any point in time or in or around the area of 81st, 91st? that area. I've diverted. I usually go Sheridan home. Now I go like Mingo. I go way over to get around that joker. About 169. Anybody south 169? See the uh, road construction there, repairing some bridges? I don't, nobody asked me if they wanted to repair those bridges because I use that corridor almost every single day. And you'll always see in these construction areas, it's summertime in Tulsa, and so you'll always see this sign. It's going to say something like this. Have you seen it before? Men at work. Anytime you go to a construction zone, even if nothing's going on, even if you just see the cones up there, 
There's these big, bright, orange caution signs that say men at work. And you know, based on that sign, to slow down because something is going on here. Habakkuk 1, 6 through 11, is this great, gigantic construction sign. It doesn't say men at work. It's going to say God's at work. Ron Blue is an incredible commentary on the book of Habakkuk. And he says, as he's uh, depicting this, the prophet needed to open his blind eyes and see that God was at work. He says, alongside the men at work signs stands another important sign, God at work. And so God gives Habakkuk four commands. Look at it, verse five. Look, see, wonder, be astounded. God is at work. He's doing something when you think he's not doing something. And it's a perfect answer to the description that Habakkuk gives of the situation back in verse three. There was four key nouns at the end of verse three. Destruction, violence, strife, contention. God answers that with look, see, wonder, be astounded. There's no way that you're going to be able to read this chapter and be convinced or think or conclude that God is not working when you think he is not working. There's a bigger plan going on here. It's a plan for the nations of the world to ultimately give glory to God, just like Brad was praying this morning. We are part of something much grander and much bigger in the body of Christ for his kingdom. God is at work to bring about his glory across the world. And he won't stop. And he's going to return and set up that glory. The King James Version says, wonder marvelously. The NIV says, be utterly amazed. And like I said, that's a, that's a verse that's going to be quoted by the Apostle Paul in Acts 13. And I want you to just make a mention of that if you don't have cross-references in your scriptures. Look down at verse 6. Let's finish up this, uh, this section here. Habakkuk 1, verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. And this is a name for the Babylonians, okay? That bitter and hasty nation. And I want you to see how the Babylonians are described here. Who march through the breadth of the earth and seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle. They are swift to devour. Verse 9. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and they take it. At one point in time, uh, fortresses were designed with huge uh, moats in front of them. The only way that you could get to the fortress is, is by some entrance, either by lowering a bridge or some entrance that was heavily guarded by military men, all right? And the way to invade a fortress was you would bring in all kinds of dirt, sand, rocks. You would pile it up on one another so that you could, rock, you could walk up and get to the fortress and invade and get over their walls. This is what the Babylonians do. You're going you're gonna to try to keep me out because of the landscape? I'm going to change the landscape. And have you guys seen uh, the Masada, the story of Masada in Israel and how the Romans eventually conquered it? The palace that Herod built down there was beautiful and it was wonderful. All he did was bring in a bunch of sand and climbed up right to it before he found all those guys committed suicide. It's a crazy story. Verses 6 through 11 describe 
the Babylonians in five ways. And this is all about the Babylonians. It talks about their status, their speed, their slavery, their success, and their savior, which is their own might. Their status, verse six, they are bitter and hasty. Verse seven, they are dreaded and fearsome. One translation says they are frightening and they are terrifying. The NET notes that behind this, this idea of hasty, being a hasty people, could be the greed of the Babylonian Empire. They took swaths of land and empires and people and they really didn't care. Their military was that strong. The Babylonians eventually conquered Egypt, Edom, Judah, and Assyria. They were a world power and the pages of history tell their story extremely well. I love how one commentator describes this. He says, Judah was a speck of loose dust before the giant vacuum of Babylon. It really wasn't a fight, unfortunately. They were taken pretty easily by the time Nebuchadnezzar comes in. Verse eight depicts their speed with imagery from nature. They are swifter than leopards. They fly like an eagle or perhaps a vulture. The image there is not an eagle soaring high in the clouds. It's of a vulture who swoops down quickly to capture its prey, or an eagle who comes down quickly to get its food, its prey. Verse nine, slavery. They capture their captives like sand. We're gonna talk more about that in chapter two because it's one of the major themes, so I'm gonna come back to that as we move through this book. But verse 11 describes who they're serving, describes their savior. The Babylonians are guilty men whose might is their God. For the Babylonians, might was right. They are bigger, stronger, swifter, fast, financed, and they are fierce. Justice will be served and a battle will rage. This big dog will fight when you rattle its cage, the cage of Nebuchadnezzar. What's interesting is, is how abruptly verse 11 ends. When you read this in Hebrew, it's, it's very poetic but you would expect something to be written after verse 11. At least there's a major pause there. You expect God to say something else. You expect the situation to be changed. But there's, there's nothing. The speech act just, just stops right there. It's a divine pause. It's recorded for us to let this message sink in. Justice will be served, but it's not in a way that you'd expect. I'm raising up a pagan, vile, godless nation, and they're going to take over Judah. And in that, you, sinful Israel, will experience the justice of God. What in the world? Why, God, are you going to use a vile, godless, pagan nation to teach us justice? How in the world is this even right concerning your justice and for your people whom you created, whom you love? Well, that's not the end of the story. His justice is going to be served to the Babylonians as well. They're going to be swept away just as quickly as they came on the world scene. Alexander is, is going to be bigger and stronger than the Greco-Roman Empire will be established after this one. But what, what can we take from this, though? This is, these are hard verses to read. Jared, I'm going through a hard time. Well, let me encourage you to read Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 6 through 11. <laughs> Man, but it's, 
Sometimes this is reality for us. Sometimes this is the law of the jungle, living in a fallen world. What we can't do is we can't doubt that God is working. We've got to doubt that doubt. We've got to hang on to what we know is true from Scripture. So let me give you just a few, few points of application. Number one, God's silent does, silence does not mean he is indifferent or he is idle. God's silence does not mean that he is indifferent to what's happening or that he is idly looking along. Remember C.S. Lewis, after that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. He will later pen in the very same book, I've gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. He did a complete 180 as he experienced grief and pain in his own, own life as he wrote, read and wrote about it. Psalm 42 is an is a interesting psalm. I want to I kind of draw your attention there. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read just a few verses out of Psalm 42 because David does the same types of things as he um, cries out and laments to God. Psalm 42, famous verses, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And later on in that, in that same psalm, he says something completely different. The beginning of the psalm, he feels like God is, is silent. He's made his soul cast down, and he's not working in his heart or in his life. The psalm goes on to say, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. There's a difference between silence and roar of waterfalls, right? All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. There's a difference between silence and, and waves and hitting the shore and the sound that they make over and over again. One writer says of that psalm that the psalmist comes to see that there is no silence with God. There's just an answer coming from God that's deeper than words. When you and I experience or, or feel like God is silent, the psalmist comes to see that there is no silence with God. There's just an answer coming from God that is deeper than words. It's not silence that we encounter in suffering, but it's a divine pause, a prompting to engage in personal reflection so that the deepest and the most important answers can be sought. God's silence is often deafening, but it shouldn't be defeating. And there is a divine irony here that a lot of times when God appears to be or seems to be the most silent is exactly when he is speaking the loudest to all of us. Pain and suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world, to understand that there is evil in this world and something is not right with it. And we all need to deal with that individually at the heart level as we experience it. Number one, God's silence does not mean he is indifferent or he is idle. Number two, with God, questions of why are answered with whom. Questions of why God are answered with answers of whom. Ron Blue says in his commentary on Habakkuk, he says that what begins with a question mark in Habakkuk ends with an exclamation point. The answer for Habakkuk's why is who whom is working in this context? It's God. It's God's justice that will prevail. It's God's answer to violence that will be seen. I've entitled this series A Quest for Control because typically when we go through times of pain and suffering, 
that's when we realize probably the clearest of all that we are not in control. That God is God and we are not. And he is still sovereign. He is still in control. His ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. Right, Gary? Sometimes they are completely different. But they are always so, so good as Derek was singing about this morning. I was talking to somebody in our church family recently. He said, of all Satan's illusions, the one that seems to be the most powerful is the illusion of control. Of all Satan's illusions, the one that seems to be the most powerful in our hearts and in our lives is the illusion of control. In suffering we are faced and we have to deal with that. I love what A.W. Tozer says. He says, you may be a Christian businessman, making all the decisions, buying and selling in big amounts. You go home, you run your house, you run your family. But there's one thing that you will not run, brother. All of a sudden, Tozer sounds like the Hulkster. You will not run your own life after the Holy Spirit is given control. You will not be able to dictate to the Holy Spirit. Tozer says, this is our trouble. We're dictators. When life falls apart because you experience suffering or pain, God's megaphone is speaking very loudly to you. Something is not right. Slow down. Understand who I am. Understand the character of God. But I want to I go back and I want to end on this. There's a it's verse 5. We didn't really talk too much about this. Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I have told you. Do you know that, that Paul picks that very verse up in Acts 13? There's, it's a little bit different there. There's an added section to it, but it's almost verbatim. It's probably got a cross-reference in your Bible. I am doing something in this world through this pain and suffering that you would not believe if I would have told you ahead of time. When Paul talks about that verse, he talks about it differently than something painful happening to the nation of, of Israel. It's different than talking about the pain and suffering of, of the experiences of the people that he's talking to. Paul picks up that verse and, and he says, you know what? This is applicable to the time when Jesus was crucified on the cross. And everybody who was a follower of Christ, when they saw that their king and the claims that he made and the statements that he himself was God, saw him crucified on a Roman cross, could not understand what in the world is God doing by giving us a Messiah who is crucified at the hand of the Romans. This doesn't make any sense to me. The Apostle Paul started to make a lot of sense of it real quick. He actually said, wonder at this. Be astounded at what's happening to Jesus on Calvary's cross. Because God the Father was doing a work in that day that you wouldn't believe if he would have told you about it. He's going to crucify the Messiah. And because of the pain and the suffering that he experienced on the cross, we get to have forgiveness, joy, freedom from sin, and everlasting life. And none of us in this room, none of us would have scripted that. None of us would say, you know what, God, that's a really good plan. I think we can... Uh, we can run with that one and go with it. All of us would have been perplexed. All of us would have said things like, how long, oh God? 
Are you going to let your, your son suffer and hang on a cross? How long are you going to let the injustices and the violence of this world continue? How long is it going to be the law of the jungle? Eat or be eaten. God comes along and says, I'm going to use even pain and suffering for a purpose that you would never, ever believe. I'm going to bring so much good from this but you've got to understand that I am God and you are not. I'm going to do it in my way. It's a way that you don't understand right now, but in the end, you will see the magnificence and the glory of it. That even through the pain and suffering of Jesus, three days later, he would be risen from the grave and everything would be different, even for us as we experience life, joy, and peace. Whatever pain, whatever suffering, everybody's got it. We all got it. You were either in pain and suffering right now or you are about to be, so just hold on. Think about this verse, Habakkuk 1, verse 5. Wonder and be astounded. I'm going to use this in a way that you would never understand if I told you. This is the message of Habakkuk. We're going to read about it more in the weeks to come. I want to encourage you to come back. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for um, your goodness, your grace, your sovereignty, your control, Lord. Uh, I thank you that tucked away in the recesses of these minor prophets is this book of Habakkuk that is just a gem. It is a diamond in the rough. And if we can get a hold of its message, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would grip our hearts to do so. It will change the way that we look at this world, the way that we look at this nation, what you are doing in Israel what you're doing in Russia, what you're doing in Ukraine, what you're doing in our hearts and in our lives. God, help us to rely on those verses that are so crystal clear about your character and who you are. Help us to doubt our doubts when we face them just like Habakkuk did. Help us to trust you along the way. Help us to give control over completely to you because you are God and we are not. Help us to see your goodness through all situations in life. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. For you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.